Um, good morning, all. I do want to, before I uh, uh, open God's Word, um, just uh, say a quick word about um, our uh, proposal last week. If you weren't here or weren't able to come to uh, the meeting, um, we, we mentioned uh, a need for space and some of the ideas that we have in, uh, in how to go about getting some more space and use our resources and the space God has given us uh, the best that we can in being good stewards. Um, and I was thinking about that even this week as we were thinking about uh, space for offices and life groups. Um, I, I loaned out, I loaned out, um, my, my, uh, my, my office for a life group that met uh, the same night that we do Kids Club, and, uh, and I thought, yes, of course, you know, they needed some extra space. Yep, use that. Um, I happen to need to grab something. Uh, this is what I found. Um, when, when I discovered my office, uh, you'll notice there are some people hiding behind the door that wish to remain anonymous. This is fine. They, they, they emphasized they were not participants. They were unwilling. Uh, simply there to testify later. Um, all that to say, can I encourage all of you to look into our new building proposal <laughs> where create some more office space. Um, as much as, um, as I joke about the office space, um, when, when I see this, really and truly, our, our biggest desire and our biggest need, I think, is to have a better um, and sort of more tailored space for kids' ministries. Um, if you have been upstairs at all on a Sunday morning, you know that uh, these kids are coming. They are uh, growing both in number and in their size and energy themselves. Uh, and uh, the trends in the church are, uh, are showing we're going to have that for a few years to come. Uh, and that's wonderful, and that's great. Um, and we want kids to have a place where they know, hey, this is for you. This is dedicated to you. Um, and, uh, and, and so this, this is one of those areas where we really feel like um, uh, this new building proposal uh, it, it could be a good solution to that. If you um, did not hear that, you can see the entire proposal, look at the numbers, look at some of the schematics and, and all of that stuff. Uh, in the weekly email, there's a link to that video, as well as a feedback form. We absolutely want to hear from you. The LT is not saying, yep, and we're going we're gonna to do this, and we're going to pay for it, and we, you, know, you guys don't worry about anything. This is a church thing. And we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear your perspective. We want to hear your feedback on that. Uh, you can click that link in the weekly email. Also, if you go to uh, www.hcclinuxville.ca slash feedback, um, you'll be able to give that as well. Um, but if you have any questions, if you are wondering, hey, what's that going to look like? What's the timeline? Uh, maybe some more details. We will do our best to answer what we can, but uh, feel free to chat with myself, the other pastors, any of the LT members, uh, and we would be happy to chat with you about that and uh, kind of what we're thinking with that. So um, on Tuesday night, I uh, logged in and made my pledge, um, but uh, that's, uh, I, that was a bit of a joke. I'm, I'm always happy to loan out my, my, uh, my office whenever it is needed, and, uh, and I have some extra toilet paper now to boot, so... Um, <laughs> 
This week, we are going to continue in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. We looked last week at uh, chapters 6 and 7. Um, and as we've been talking about uh, this whole idea of Jesus is better, remember that Hebrews is sort of one long exhortation. Uh, even if you like, you can think of it as a sermon. And it is very logical and sort of uses a lot of logical language. And it makes it difficult to break up. Uh, but this week we're going to be looking at the, the tail end of chapter 7 and then all of chapter 13. And I would like to begin by reading that um, here and now for us. So if you have your, your Bible with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to be reading from verse 22 and through all of 18 to, chap, to uh, verse 13. Hebrews 7, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he didn't, did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that is shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. As I sh and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes this first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. God, I thank you so much that you are Lord over a new and better covenant, that we do not live under the law as many did for years before. God, that we know with the benefit of hindsight now all that you are doing and accomplishing through history to redeem us to yourself because of who you are, because of your greatness, your awesomeness, and your love for mankind. And I pray that we would continue to proclaim that same message of your faithfulness and your love through your Son, Christ Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. You know, Contracts are an interesting thing. If you are like me, contracts more or less form a regular part of your life. Um, I, I, not a week goes by that I don't have some kind of contract or thing that I am signing or agreeing to. Uh, maybe it's something verbal, maybe it's something written. Even this week, uh, I signed a, a ministry agreement uh, between uh, uh, our uh, missions organization and the church to say, hey, yes, we're working with you. Here's what you'll do. Here's what we'll do. Uh, and that's part of life. Um, and, and I think sometimes some of these contracts that we make are more consequential than others. I have twice in my life, this is unbelievable to me, bought a house from a distance only using my phone. And I, I, like, I don't know if you've ever done this. There's like some e-signature thing that you do and you have this. Sometimes you don't even have to draw your signature. You just like pick out the font. And, and I think to myself, it should be a little more difficult than this. Like it should be, I, I don't like that I can pick up my phone and just be like, and a quarter million in debt, okay. Um, like it's a big, like it, it, it made me go, oh, this is a bigger deal than maybe we should look at. And yet, other times there are contracts that we paid zero attention to at all. I don't want to say this is everyone, but at least for me, whenever I see this, I roll my eyes and I just like, okay, I hit okay. I have no idea what I am agreeing to. If you are one of those sick, twisted people that says, I have to read the 96-page document, and other, I don't know how to help you, okay? I just, for me, I'm like, yes, okay, whatever. I don't care. I might be signing away my firstborn child. Just let me listen to Bruce Springsteen. That is, that is my perspective on the whole thing, okay? And so... In in thinking about contracts, this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he talks about a covenant, because a covenant is inherently, it is a contract. It is agreement between two parties 
or more sometimes, and people that say, I'm going to do this, you're going to do this, and as long as you keep doing this, I will keep doing this, and here's what we're going to get out of it, and if we don't do this, this is going to happen, and it lays out those things. And what the author is doing here in chapter 8 and a bit in chapter 7 that we're looking at is laying out why there is an even better covenant than the one before. How Jesus brokers a covenant that makes us right with God. And remember that all throughout Hebrews, we're talking about this idea that Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And so necessarily, the author is going to set up this comparison between Jesus and anything else we might be tempted or, or tried to persuade to worship instead. And he is saying, Jesus brokers a better covenant that makes us right with God. And when we say better covenant, it bears looking at, okay, what, what does this mean? What, what is this whole idea of covenant? And if you, if you want to look no further, this big idea is really kind of voiced in, in the first verse that I read. In chapter 7, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, it's saying Jesus is this sort of uh, broker. He oversees this covenant that is even better. And this is a natural progression from last week where we talked about Jesus as an even better high priest than the ones that serve in the Levitical priesthood in the temple because part of their job is overseeing the covenant. Part of what we looked at last week was how it was the responsibility of the Levites to teach the people from God's word. Primarily when they're teaching from the law, as we'll see today, that is the covenant. It is all of these sort of bits and pieces, the terms and conditions, if you will, of God saying, here is what I expect of you. And it was the priest's job to teach that to people, to say, here is what we ought to be doing. Here's what we're not doing. Here's what we need to change and that kind of a thing. And Jesus here is our great high priest, oversees an even better covenant. And we'll see why, namely because it makes us right with God. And so if we're going to be talking about covenants, uh, we should review kind of what this means in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there are kind of four main covenants that God makes with mankind. The first is with Noah, um, where after the flood, he makes this promise, never again will I flood the earth and destroy all of humanity like this. The second one is with Abraham, and we looked at this a little bit where God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you, and I am going to bless those that bless you, I'm going to make you into a blessing so that all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. The third one is with the people of Israel. It is with all of Israel sort of generally, but because Moses is the one that oversees that, we call that the Mosaic Covenant. That's mostly what we'll be talking about today. And then the fourth one is called the Davidic Covenant. In the book of 2 Samuel, David, who is king, he has this vision and there is a prophecy where God comes and he tells him, there will be someone who gets to sit on your throne, someone from your family, from your line, that will sit on your throne forever. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus, Okay. And so those are the covenants that they are talking about in the Old Testament. And what the author is doing is he is evoking this idea of the Mosaic Covenant. 
And the role of the priest in those covenants was not just to keep the law and to teach the law, but also to offer a sin offering whenever that part of the covenant was broken. If we've sinned in this way, he's going to go up and there are certain procedures that he has to follow in killing animals and sprinkling blood on the altar. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week as we talk about this holy place and approaching and, and behind the veil and things like that. And he is making a contrast between the role of those priests and what they do and what they were prescribed to do and Jesus' role as our great high priest and how he oversees this even better covenant that God is making. And as we see later in the passage, renders this old covenant obsolete. And so we look at this contrast that he's making with the Levitical priests and what they're doing. And even as, as you read like um, uh, in, in verse 27, um, he has no need like those priests to offer daily, okay? And, and there's this contrast with like, if you jump down to verse three of chapter eight, where he says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also uh, to have something to offer. We don't quite get this in the English text, but the tense here is very important. It is very present tense. The author is kind of saying, even now, even now, every single day, there are these Levitical priests in the temple in Jerusalem doing this, continually making uh, sacrifices for our sins. It's one of the reasons why we can date the book of Hebrews very very well because we know when the temple is destroyed and we know the references made to the temple in the book tell us, hey, it's still standing. And so we know this is written somewhere in the mid to late 60s AD. And what, he, what he's doing here is saying, listen, those other priests, they have to every single day, they have to perpetually make these sacrifices and make atonement for your sins. Jesus doesn't have to do that because he made a perfect sacrifice. He shed his blood once and for all, and your sins are covered. You no longer have need for someone else to continually make these sacrifices to atone your sins. Jesus has already done that. It's done, because Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And here, Jesus brokers a covenant that makes us right with God. And so you see here in this, this tail end of chapter 7, a sort of necessary comparison between the Levitical priesthood and Jesus, and specifically as it relates to the covenant that the Levitical priests would oversee. And then as we move into chapter 8, it's, it's made clear specifically what kind of covenant we're talking about through the language that's used. Even look at uh, uh, verse 2, where he says, a minister in the holy places in the true tent. Maybe your version says tabernacle. It's the same thing, okay? The word that, that is translated, excuse me, tabernacle in the Old or New Testament is a very simple word that's used all the time. It just means a tent, this temporary place that gets moved around all the time. And the reason for that is, right after the Mosaic Covenant is given, 
the chapters that immediately follow that in Exodus are all about setting up this tabernacle, this tent. It is all the sort of building schematics of where to put the basin and what it needs to be made out of and so many cubits by so many cubits and where the veil goes and all of that stuff is laid out. And so it's pointing very specifically to this Mosaic covenant that is given to the people of Israel after the exodus from Egypt in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. And he's saying here, Jesus is even better. He oversees a better covenant. He's in an even better tent. It's not some man-made tent that has to be moved around. Jesus is before the actual literal throne of God doing these things. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus is better and oversees a better covenant. Look down on verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. What he's saying is Jesus doesn't even technically qualify to be a Levitical priest. We talked about that last week a little bit, how Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And so automatically, he is not a Levitical priest. He's a whole other kind of priest. And if he is some whole other different category of priest, it means he oversees a whole other, newer, better, completely different category of covenant. And that is what the author is talking about. And he uses... Some really, really important words in the very next verse, verse 5. Read this with me. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. I really want to camp out on verse 5 here and, and, and what he's saying. Uh, and, and, and we get more details that kind of point us directly to Exodus 19 through 24 when he says, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on that mountain. You see, what happened is after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, they escape Egypt, they wander around in the desert for 40 years, one of the things that happens is that Moses, along with Aaron and some other guys, they go up on this mountain, and there they see God face to face, and God gives them instructions for this covenant that he is making with Israel. And it follows uh, a form that is very common in the ancient Near East called a suzerain suzerainty treaty, okay? This gets a little bit technical, but bear with me, okay? What God is doing is he is kind of making this almost like a national constitution with these people when he is laying out this covenant as a suzerainty treaty. And there are some elements of every Near East suzerainty treaty that, that are worth looking at. The first is they identify a ruler and it gives titles, if you look at Exodus chapter 20, and God spoke all these words, this is God up on the mountain talking to Moses saying, write all this down and, and tell the people. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Second thing is it extols the leader's deeds. That same verse continues, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of, out of, the house of slavery. Third, it states the principles that govern the relationship. And this is key. This is really important to understanding this Mosaic 
covenant that God gives to the people through Moses on the mountain. When he starts, even before this, even before chapter 20, those verses I just read are the preamble to the Ten Commandments. But even before this, in chapter 19, he kind of gives the big picture when he says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What he is saying is the entire point of this agreement, the entire point of this covenant, this contract, is to say we are different because our God is different. And when all the other nations look at Israel, they should say, what's different about them? There is something unique about that nation. There is something just kind of over and above about this people group. That's God's intention. He's saying, I want you to live like this. I want you to obey these commands so that you are distinct so that everything that you do communicates to the world my character, my faithfulness, my creativity, my great, deep, abiding love for mankind, and my mission to redeem you to myself through a promised Messiah. All that they are doing is meant to show the world the uniqueness of Israel and why they are holy and set apart, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Fourth, A suzerainty treaty includes uh, stating the blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience, okay? I do this with my children. If you are able to feed the dog and get your backpack and clean out your lunchbox and yada, 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 then you get to live in my house. All right. Some people have nice little chore charts and they give allowances and you get so many Skittles and I'm like, no, did you eat today? You're welcome. Um, Anyway, God does the same thing when he lays out the covenant to his people and he says, honor your father and mother. This is just one example. Honor your father and mother that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Listen, if you do this and live this way, you will get these things. Okay. On the flip side to that, he lays out some of the consequences if they don't do those things. For example, from chapter 22, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And there are some really hard and troubling parts of these uh, chapters in scripture where you know, he lays out all the ways that they are meant to interact with one another and towards uh, slaves and towards foreigners and towards um, uh, uh, the festivals that they keep and has all of these things. And there are some times when he says, and if you don't do those things, there are consequences. It's important to note, just because we are freed from the condemnation of our sin does not mean that we are free from the consequences of our sin. And that's what God is doing as he lays out the terms and conditions of this treaty. Finally, there's a recorded acceptance or ratification of the people. Typically, they would come together and chant in one voice that they agree to this treaty. And we see this same thing happen after Moses writes everything down. He comes down the mountain. He explains this to everyone. And in Exodus chapter 24, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Can you imagine that? Okay. Wonderful. Now, As they're doing all of this, we are told in Hebrews, all of this 
is a shadow. It's a copy. Look back at verse 5 of chapter 8 of Hebrews. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. All of this was meant to point to Jesus. In fact, I have said this before, I'll say it again, all scripture points to Jesus. And what's happening here is God is giving people a little bit of a glimpse. He does not use the word imprint. If you'll recall from Hebrews chapter 1 where we talked about how Jesus is the exact same nature as God the Father, an exact imprint. He says it's a copy, it's a shadow. And in fact, he uses kind of popular terminology in Greek language and culture. It it, it evokes a guy named Plato and this idea of everything that we see is just kind of a shadow. It's something that's kind of real, but not quite real. And that's what he's saying all of this is. Even the tabernacle itself, even the temple, the tent that they use is just a shadow. It's a copy. In fact, he says, Moses saw the throne room when he was on heaven, and he is meant to replicate that in the tent, but it's not quite the same thing, okay? Have you ever drawn something from memory? (laughs) Have you ever tried to kind of make a copy? And maybe you're an excellent artist, maybe you're really good at it, but always, 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 there's something in that that you go, yeah, but that's just a, a copy. It's just a shadow. It's an imperfect kind of glimpse, What he's saying is, Jesus is a perfect example. He is even better. Why? He doesn't have to remember what the throne room of God looks like. He's there. That is the temple that Jesus is overseeing, and that is the covenant that Jesus is brokering with us, one that makes us right with God. And that's also why the chapters following from Exodus 25 through 30 give us these building plans of what the temple is meant to look like. But we're told that that is flawed. This this covenant that was made was flawed. Remember, remember the whole point of the covenant was to show them a nation that was set apart, a holy nation, a nation that was different, a nation that the way that they acted, the way that they worshiped, the way that they celebrated showed the rest of the world the character of God. What that covenant couldn't do was make them right with God. Hear me say this. Obeying the law did not make them right with God. As a matter of fact, obeying the law never made anyone right with God. We're going to talk about this when we get to chapter 11 and we talk about faith, but the righteousness that is accredited to the forefathers, to Moses and to Abraham and to others, that righteousness is because of their faith, not because of obeying the law. And so inherently, this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, this old covenant is going to fall short because it does not make the people right with God. But Jesus offers a better covenant. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. In other words, if that covenant could have made them right with God, if the old Mosaic covenant could have made it so that the people's sin was perfectly atoned for and they were made right with God, we would have no need for Jesus. We would have no need for a new covenant. 
But as it stands, Jesus brokers a covenant that does make us right with God. And in fact, we're told this as he goes on to quote the prophet uh, Jeremiah in verses 9 through 12, when he says, "This, this new covenant that God is making with his people through his son Jesus, it's not like the old covenant. It's different. It's better. It is supreme. In fact, it renders the other one obsolete and out of date. Look at verse 9 when he says, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. If the old one, the purpose was to show the world what God was like, the purpose of this new covenant is to explain to people you can be made right with God. Another reason why it wasn't as good is because the people messed it up. In any covenant, there was a sense of saying, we're going to do these things and you're going to do those things. And there's inherent in that an issue of, if you don't do your part, I don't have to do my part anymore. I was chatting with uh, someone this week where we were talking about marriage as a covenant. And if marriage is a covenant between two people and someone says, I promise to do this, and then they don't do that, which by the way, that, that happens. <laughs> None of us are perfect husbands or perfect wives. Then what? Does that make it so that the other one says, oh, I guess I don't have to do X, Y? No. But if marriage is a covenant made with God, does God ever break his promises? No. That is the whole point here. In this old covenant, the people were bound to fail. They were always going to fail. There was always going to be some part of this where the people messed up and didn't uh, do what they were supposed to do. In this new covenant, the wording is, is just categorically different. Look at the way he quotes from Jeremiah and the language that is used with this new covenant that God is making. It is broad. It is authoritative. It is God saying, I will do this. I will do that. They shall be this. There are no terms and conditions. This is just a covenant of God saying, here is what I am doing. You don't like it? Tough. It's not about you. It's about God, his faithfulness, his promises that he absolutely will keep. And all that we have to do is have faith that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he said he will do. And it ends in verse 13 with this reminder of what they're being tempted to return to. Remember that all of Hebrews is this letter written to a Jewish diaspora who is facing intense persecution. If they are followers of Jesus, there is temptation to say, forget that. This Jesus guy isn't working out. You need to come back to the Levitical way. You need to come back to the Mosaic Covenant. You need to come back and worship as your Jewish brothers and sisters do. And he is saying, in speaking of his new covenant, he makes that first one obsolete. You want to go back to that old covenant? It's broken. It's obsolete. It's not going to make you right with God. Jesus brokers a covenant that does make us right with God. Why on earth would you ever say no to that? So we come to, so what? What do we do with this here now, thousands of years later? 
And I have a a few thoughts in my mind about this idea of Jesus brokering a new and better covenant, one, in fact, that does make us right with God. My first thought is this. Remember, don't rely on the law to make you righteous. Obeying the law never made anyone right with God. So often we get the law wrong. We see it as this way that I can earn my righteousness and be made right with God. Never ever rely on the law to make you right with God. It's not going to work. Rather, ask yourself, as Israel ought to have, how is it that my actions, how is it that what I do and the way that I obey, how is it that what choices and decisions I make in my life show to my neighbors the kind of God that I serve? How is it that I can live in such a way that makes everyone that looks at my life go, that's different. She's got something. He's got something. And I want to find out more. The entire point of the Mosaic Covenant was to show that Israel was a nation that was set apart, that was different. In fact, to draw the surrounding nations towards the creator God, Yahweh. Ask yourself, as I read God's word, as I look into who he is and his character, and then the choices that I do, the commands that I follow, the ways that I obey, is what I am doing showing to the rest of the world the character of the awesome, mighty creator God that I serve? Ask yourself that, and that is going to change the way that you parent. That's going to change the way that you do business. That's going to change the way you interact with your neighbors and your spouse. It's going to change the way that you come to church on a Sunday morning, where the entire point of my obedience is to show the world what a better, awesome God I have. Jesus is better than anything or anyone else we could ever possibly worship. My other thought, as I'm thinking about this idea from from verse 5, of this copy, this shadow, of all of the ways that Jesus was was being whispered out long before he ever showed up in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, I think about how God can and does use all sorts of copies and shadows to show us something that he is doing, something he will do, something he is already accomplishing that we might not know or understand. Let's let God's use of copies and shadows change your perspective. If the old covenant was meant to serve as this copy, if the old temple tabernacle tent was meant to serve as this sort of, it's like a shadow. It's not perfect, but it's this this hint of a throne room that's coming. It's this hint of this dwelling place of God that you will eventually see perfectly, even though right now this is just kind of a, a shadow, a hint, a copy. If God is using all of history to show us Jesus when he comes... I think about all of the ways that God could be showing us little copies and little shadows of things to come. And I I want that to change your perspective of whatever season that you're in right now, of whatever thing that you're going through, of whatever frustration you might be experiencing, of whatever tension that you're struggling with. 
maybe in relationships, maybe in, in just unmet expectations of goals that aren't, aren't quite going the way that you wanted, of life that's turning out in a way that's very different than you thought it would. And I want to be careful here. I am not giving you some empty, uh, you know, cheesy platitude to say, whatever you're going through, God's using it, and you'll see eventually. Maybe. Absolutely maybe. I can't make that promise. What I am saying, though, is that God has used all sorts of things. He has used slavery in Egypt. He's used exile. He's used evil and bent kings. He has used death on a cross for his glory. He has used all of these things that make us come out on the other side and go, oh, that's what he was doing. I don't know if whatever you're going through right now and whatever you're experiencing is part of God's grand plan that's going to work out in the end that you'll see. What I am saying, though, is that is the kind of God we serve. Is God using your current circumstances to sanctify you to build his kingdom and to bring glory to himself? Maybe. Is that the kind of God we serve who uses all things, past, present, future, expected, unexpected, good, bad, ugly, joyful, hurtful, all things to make something that's really amazing, beautiful, and awesome? You bet you. He is absolutely a God that does that. Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And whatever you might be going through right now, Understand this, Jesus brokers a covenant that makes us right with God. And everything that we do serves as this sort of redirection towards hope. And all throughout Hebrews, God is doing this. He is redirecting our perspective towards hope, towards the beauty and the wondrous picture that he is painting that we can't quite see yet, but we will someday. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for all of the whispers, for all of the shadows, for all of the copies that you put in our life that help us to see how you are unfolding history to point towards your glory and building your kingdom. I pray that we would be faithful in seeing this new covenant under which we live, that we would proclaim this better covenant that you told about long, long ago, and that we would proudly boast that we are adherents to that covenant. Not because we have obeyed the law, not because we're better, not because we're part of some chosen club, but simply because of who you are and the promises that you've made and your faithfulness, God. And we pray that we too would be faithful in proclaiming that message for all the days of our life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.